Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Monday, March 21st. As promised, we have another two Mini Break Monday for all of you listeners as we break down all of the action that unfolded at Championship Weekend in Indian Wells. Of course, we also are keeping our eye on the second half of the Sunshine Swing as the Miami Open is set to begin this week. It's a lot of high-level tennis for all of us fans to enjoy. Certainly, we're going to have to balance multiple thoughts at once. And if you're going to break down all of the action that happens, men's and women's, as I said on part one of this show, you better have some good guests to help you do that. Thankfully, we do here at Crack Rackets. And joining me on today's show to break down all of the action that unfolded on the men's side of Championship Weekend at Indian Wells is a familiar foe, guest, co-host not sure what to frame him as at this point on the podcast of course he's a man you all know best as the host of three a tennis show host of monday match analysis you'll hear him in the play-by-play crossover on all things tennis channel as well of course i know him best as my eyebrowed nemesis gil gross gil welcome back to the show my friend busy weekend you look tan i'm not gonna lie you look sexy as well how are you doing uh you too great to be back rusty uh (laughs) I see your strategy, though. You're trying to take over Monday. <laughs> Double pot every Monday. You, you know this is my day, and you're just like, we're going to do what we can to to take it away. So I just so you know, I've noticed. I imagine, and often I think of these as therapy sessions. I think if I was sitting with a therapist, subconsciously they would say, but why do you do that? And I would say, well, you know, Monday is a competitive space because there's a lot of championship recasts and everyone's going to have their recap pod. But if you have two recap pods, that's how you stand out amongst the rest of the crowd. No, the truth is I always feel bad and I feel like I have to compensate because there's so much good action that happens on the weekends. At the same time now we have our SEC red zone on Friday, or excuse me, cross-court coverage on Friday. We have our Big Ten cross-court coverage on Sunday as well. You're just so drained at the end of those, and it would be disingenuous if I pod when I haven't yet watched the matches. Thus, thank you for rescheduling from last night here to today. Um, That is why I often do too many break Mondays, because I'm like, I have watched 12 matches in six hours. I have so many takes. Let's spread them out over two episodes to try to be more organized. If you were curious about the origins of the two mini break Monday. Tell it to the judge. Yeah. (laughs) Steve Weissman, come in. He's joining us here now on the show. Um, No, exactly. That's fair. But as always, I appreciate you taking the time. I know Mondays are a busy day for you and you big time us now. You got other hits to do. You know, you're getting the call ups to all the podcasts now, justifiably so. But I always appreciate getting the chance to talk to you, particularly when it is a member of the big three. In this instance, Rafael Nadal making a big run all the way to the final playing Are we going to call it match of the year? I don't know if 
I mean, Australian Open final for Rafa is probably the match of the year to date, but that semifinal against Carlos Alcaraz is on the short list right now. And then, you know, it's hilarious that immediately that's overshadowed because Taylor Fritz does what we've been waiting for so many young Americans to do over the years and not to discredit what John Isner did in uh, in Miami and not to discredit what Jack Sock did in Paris. But there's something much more real, much more tangible about this success from Taylor Fritz and the plethora of young Americans who had success at Indian Wells that all of us are talking about, all of us are celebrating now following Fritz's victory over Nadal in the final. And I want to talk about all of those things with you here on today's show. That's why it's also a two-mini break Monday because we can't do all of that and then be like, hey, Iga Sviantek was pretty good too. Uh, but also, before we get into that, I think there's a narrative that's emerged about Indian Wells, and I did the long-form version of this on part one. I'll give you the condensed version here now. I think the outward-speaking members of the tennis community, those who are most vocal on tennis Twitter in particular, the consensus seems to be that given the conditions in Indian Wells, whether it be the heavy winds that so frequently do plague countless matches throughout the course of the event, whether it be just these slow, mud-like courts where it's just so hard to hit through them and the tennis is such grinding, physical tennis, and at times, some would argue boring tennis, very monotonous, right? You're seeing the same points over and over again. I just firmly disagree with that narrative. I think Indian Wells provides the ultimate physical challenge on tour outside of the major events, and I think that applies for both the men and the women. And to have this event, such a physical event, this early in the season, I think it's the perfect litmus test at the end of the hard courts. It's like, who is who? When we come out of this first third of the season, who was the most physically fit? Who was the most in form as we look moving forward here uh, in all of the action? And that is why I value Indian Wells particularly so. I also think these conditions provide excellent conditions for tennis, whether it be the fact that because you have to play such a physical style, you got to bring out all the tools in the toolbox. There's no just slapping winners. There's no, well, these courts are so lightning fast. If you land a first serve, you're just going to win the court. It's so physical. At the same time, it's not on clay courts, so everyone can move well. Like, you put Taylor Fritz on a clay court, I don't care how slow it is, he's just not as comfortable moving on it as he is on hard courts. Mm -hmm. It's funny, that actually is the short version. I think I did double that in part one. But I value Indian Wells immensely, and I also enjoy the quality of play. What say you? This is a a unique stop on the tour. I would understand if there was... Uh, some fatigue if there were a bunch of hard courts that were slow and gritty and high bouncing like Indian Wells if that became a norm then I could get why people would want some quicker hard courts but this is not the norm this is an outlier Indian Wells very unique place to play unique place to be by the way which I was able to experience for the first time that desert setting with the mountains towering over the perimeter of the grounds and the vast space and the just kind of the desert environment, very different. And the conditions are too. And in terms of people maybe complaining about the results being wild, I think there's some recency bias there. I don't think that Indian Wells has been a place of all out chaos 
Have we had it two years in a row? Yes. Was last year's in October, which makes a difference? Yes. But look, coming into this event, there were reasons to not feel great about Stefano Tsitsipas, given his form since the Australian Open. There was plenty of reasons to have doubts about where Alexander Zverev's head was at. There were reasons to doubt Daniil Medvedev and whether or not he could play to the best of his abilities. These upsets weren't that wild. Uh, were, were they upsets? Yes. Were they completely crazy? I don't think so, especially if you take into account the opponents. And then if you go back and you look at Indian Wells history, this has not really been a chaos tournament. I mean, we've had Federer and Djokovic and Nadal and Murray do really well at this event on the men's side. Uh, team and Federer played a great final in 2019. Del Potro and Federer played a good final in 2018. So I just think there's a lot of recency bias, and I don't agree with Indian Wells' slander. I'm with you. I think you framed it so perfectly. Outside of Nur Sultan, which me, well, I'm watching because you're on the call for it, but, you know, there's seven of us out there watching. That's not fair. This is an outlier. You're right, and I think that's the perfect way of framing it. It's not as though, go watch what happened in, in Canada last year, those lightning quick surfaces that Riley Opelka just serves his way through to the final, and that Opelka has this run of success here at Indian Wells. If anything, it's to see the contrast in the surface, and, you know, we've talked about this before. Anytime you bring up court speed, it's such a superficial argument because there is no concrete measurement, at least publicly available, mm -hmm. of court speed. And so to say this plays fast, this plays slow, any evidence you have is anecdotal. That said, when you have the overwhelming amount of anecdotal evidence, when any tennis fan can see, huh, these Indian Wells courts are really slow, it's probably a fact. And every player speaks to that fact as well. I have no issue with it. I agree. It's not as though every court plays this way. Go watch the Australian Open. Go watch the U.S. Open. Go watch Cincinnati. This is the furthest outlier in terms of slow hard courts. And I kind of like to see it as a Masters event because I like to see who can win the physical battle here two out of three sets. And I don't want to say this is a preview of what a Grand Slam would look like if it was two out of three sets, but it's like not the not the furthest facsimile given the physicality of the event given you're playing seven high level matches in about 11 days I thought I thought it was extraordinarily you know again do I like the wind as much as anyone enjoys watching wind factor into a match but that's gonna happen outdoors I you know there's been people who call it tennis paradise they say that's slander you were there is it tennis paradise I, I think it is <laughs> I really do and and the reason why it's tennis paradise is they're loaded with money. The grounds are as nice as you're going to see. And the prize money, by the way, is, is super high, too. It's so the tasty. Play, yeah, the players see that as well. And it's in the middle of nowhere. So you have a bunch of, look, California is a tennis-rich place. But you have a bunch of Californians. Most of them do not live near Indian Wells all kind of making the trek, it's a trip. And then internationally in a normal year, you're gonna have a lot of travelers uh, descending on Indian Wells as well from all over the place. But this truly is uh, an environment full of tennis fanatics. This is not Queens, there are no locals really. And the locals that there are have retired in Palm Desert to play tennis and golf. <laughs> yeah. So they all love tennis. Uh, it is tennis paradise and by the way, I think that it should be added. The U.S. Open was sped up. That used to be slow, hard court. It's not anymore. 
And I, I had another point, but I lost the second one. U.S. Open is sped up. No, that's good. I like it. And do you find yourself now because, and you know, <laughs> I like to make fun of you, by the way, or anytime I make fun of you, it comes from a place of envy. You know, you went to Newhouse. So I imagine, you know, do you know the author John Bacon, the reporter who, I mean, covers all things Michigan. So maybe you wouldn't, but he's written pretty much any book on the Michigan athletics. It has been written by John Bacon. And I got to take a class from him my freshman year. He would want me to tell you that nothing can be very unique. It's either unique or it's not unique. Because if something, how can something, how can it, can something be a degree of you? There's no degree of uniqueness. It either is or it isn't. He would, he would always go out of his way to correct that. He would always say, "You didn't get your hair cut. You got your hairs cut. What? You got a single oh, hair cut? Yeah, this was him. You'd like look. I yeah. Great. I don't even. I can't even get on board with the first one. I think something can be slightly unique. Is that the most clear? terminology or phrasing no but i think it exists ah uh, degrees of uniqueness i think there's degrees very rare <laughs> that it's not unique. yeah that it's rare it's rare it's not unique would be his argument hmm yeah that's a thing one of uh, but michigan one new like, house zero no i disagree it's <laughs> like if so, if there's 80 tournaments and two are on slow hard courts okay that's very unique if no because there's ten, another one it's very rare it's not unique what unique has to be one of a kind that yes means. that is no, the definition no, that is the textbook no, no, definition no. no you're wrong you're wrong on this one i'm gonna look it go up go to the dictionary yeah check check the tape i think i'm right on this one i don't think i'm right i know i'm right on this one anyways the the point oh being, wow yeah, Correct. one being the only one of its kind. In that case, that word is grossly misused on a regular basis. It is gill grossly misused, not just <laughs> grossly. It is gill grossly misused. I would agree with you. I'm glad to hear, though, that so anecdotally, because I have not had the chance to attend Indian Wells. It's, uh, again, a couple of blemishes on my resume. I've only been to one NCAA tournament. Me being who I am, the fact that I've only actually been to one is kind of embarrassing. Um, it's sorry. I don't know if that's a humble brag or not, but no, no, I've been criticized it before, right? Out. I feel like it's a blemish. Um, I've also never attended a Grand Slam, and the only Masters 1000 event or I've been to is Cincinnati, and it just it's a blemish. It is. Yeah. What's your, I, li I, what's your I, list? Do, do Give me your list right now. Where have you I've, been? U.S. I, Open. The U.S. Open's my home tournament. I <laughs> I went to. Don't laugh. I went to uh, Miami back when it was in Key Biscayne, okay. and I saw. I only saw two matches. I, I saw, hit at Key Biscayne on a club tennis oh, nice. reunion trip in Miami. Great time, but that doesn't count. Go on. Okay. That was 2021. I saw. You know what my lineup was? Ferrer and Sharapova on center oh, in Miami. God, that's a good lineup. How good is that? Yeah, I got to see Murray Federer night match in Cincinnati. That was fantastic. Yeah. Uh, okay, I've been, and then when I went to Europe a couple of summers ago, I went to Wimbledon, Roland Garros, and I went to Queens. I didn't see a ball struck. It okay. rained the whole time. <laughs> got my money back, but I've seen the grounds. Okay. 
It's funny now, that you said Queens. I, I was like, it. didn't you just call the New York uh, uh, the New York Open? Didn't you just call the U.S. <laughs> Open your home tournament? And you're talking about going to Queens, and I'm like, oh, you mean Queens Club? I was like, I see what you're saying now. Not Queens, New York. I was like, all right, Peter Parker. I was like, get out of here <laughs> from Queens. Um, yeah, that's uh, that's a good list. I it's not, again, I got a couple of things. I was my my dad for work was in Australia. And it was during December and January. And he was like, just, and he like had to do it a couple years in a row. And he was like, why don't you just come with me one of these years and we'll go to the open. And I was like, I can't justify it to God or Dalton if I don't have a press pass. I'm like, I'm sorry, I can't do it. And so I'm just so, anyways, no one wants to hear about this. Uh, they want to hear about the Indian Wells coverage. And so the, I have a couple of spots I'm going to get to. We Maybe we can travel together. We can put it on the list. I feel like Make a Texas swing. Like, let's go Dallas-Austin next year, men's, women's events. Breaking news. Working the breaking news into it. You like that? That's uh, it's very the, good. Hey, results, storylines, results, and controversies, my friend. All found <laughs> here on the Video Break Podcast. But with that said, let's talk about the results. Of course, the reason we're able to do all this day in, day out here on this show is because of the support we get from our friends at Tennis Point. A huge thank you to them for their sponsorship. And of course, if you need anything from an equipment standpoint in your life, just go to one location, tennis-point.com. You'll find it all at the best prices. You use our promo code CR15 at checkout not only we let them know we sent you there you'll get 15 percent off all sale items free two-day shipping on all orders exceeding 75 dollars best of all a free can of wilson extra duty tennis balls tennis-point.com that promo code is cr15 tennis-point.com promo code is cr15 the one other thing i would add gil whenever i go to a pro event I can guarantee you that the next day I will be playing tennis because there is nothing more captivating than watching it and being like, I need to go play now. Yeah, totally. And mm-hmm. it's uh, also a humbling experience because you realize, <laughs> especially on the practice courts, because it's just absurd. Yeah. And and we lose that. We watch We watch professional tennis all the time for hours and hours on end. When you're there, you start to think about, oh, wow, they are really ridiculous at this sport. All of them. All of them. No, it's you see a six singles player in a college match, and you're just like, how are you not 12 in the world? I'm just like, you're so much better than I am. And I figure if you're that much better, you must be world ranked. Yeah, <laughs> the quality of tennis gets better and better. And yeah, the pros, obviously, Indian Wells, that's the best of it all. And with that in mind, let's talk about the man who emerged as champion, your biggest storyline. Well, I don't know if it is the biggest storyline. I guess we can argue about that later. But certainly the headline coming out of this Indian Wells championship weekend is your champion, Taylor Fritz, who... You know, I texted you this privately. Was the ankle injury a Netflix conspiracy theory? The answer is obviously no. You saw it was taped up and you could see there were some limitations early on. That said, all week long from the start, Taylor Fritz thrived in these conditions in Indian Wells. And we talk about the slow, high-bouncing nature of these Indian Wells courts. You got to remember, and yeah, you know, I was listening to a podcast, I think it was... Bill Simmons and they describe Chet Holmgren as the first hunchback NBA player and like you could make an argument Taylor Fritz and Nick Kyrgios are the first two hunchback top 50 you know professional tennis players we've ever had because Fritz doesn't have the outstanding posture he doesn't have the showboat uh, you know the show-stopping athleticism he has the breathtaking power of course as well and yet 
to see that ball up in his strike zone time after time after time and to watch him just capitalize on all of these extra split seconds and extra opportunities. And again, you look for him throughout the course of the tournament, you know, he doesn't drop a tiebreaker. He's pushed to two third set breakers. He wins a first set breaker against Kasmenovic, wins that second set breaker against Nadal, who gave it a final push, right? That was Nadal saying, you know Mm -hmm. what, I'm just going to leave it all out here over these last six games and whatever happens, so be it. He survives that. He emerges as your Indian Wells champion, first American to win a crown since Isner 2019 at the Masters 1000 level, first American since Andre Agassi in 2001 to win Indian Wells. What's your takeaway with this Fritz performance, given obviously, again, we have to discuss the Nadal factor, the injuries, the wind, etc., but I'm pretty ready to crown Taylor Fritz a Masters 1000 champion. Me too. We've been building up to this. Yeah. Since last fall, the results are so, so good. And his ranking just hasn't, and I don't get into the math here. I don't know why this is. His ranking just hasn't risen as fast as his game has. And you know what? This is typical. The rankings are behind. That's why we look to something like ELO, which adjusts much faster. I'm not actually exactly sure where he's at, but the what he did at Indian Wells last year. He beat Matteo Berrettini, Yannick Sinner, and Alexander Zverev in back-to-back-to-back matches. Beat Nakashima in the first round, not too bad before then. That was kind of the turning point. From there on, he was playing a certain level of tennis and a certain brand of tennis that was uh, just an elevation and a breakthrough. In Australia, he should have beaten Stefano Tsitsipas. The nerves and his tendency which plays into i think one of the main things that was impressive in this match is fritz sometimes decelerates or has a habit of pulling back and losing the aggression losing the weight of shot in the most nervous and high pressure situations he was 0 and 8 against the big three he was 0 and 4 in his last four tour level finals I don't think the nerve management has been great, but the game, when he's relaxed, when he's confident, that since last fall has been at a borderline, if not top 10 level. And this week, he comes through these pressure situations. Final set tiebreak, as you said, against Munar. Final set tiebreak against Dimonor. Handles the moment really well and plays a great match start to finish against Rublev. And then against Nadal, he, he closes it out, played excellent in that second set tie break and you're absolutely right Nadal at this point moving well defending well making a ton of balls asking all the questions of Taylor Fritz giving himself every chance to pull off a miracle like he did against Sebastian Corda in round one and I was actually surprised I'll be completely honest and pleasantly surprised that Fritz never wavered when it comes to his aggression, his racket speed, and how big he needs to hit the ball to be successful, something that has sometimes gone away under pressure, and it didn't. 
You asked me about the ELO ratings. Tennis Abstract, of course, with their ELO ratings. Taylor Fritz, 14th in overall ELO, third in yearly ELO right now. Nadal's one, Rublev two, and then you have Taylor Fritz right now at number three, ahead of Carlos Alcaraz, who's sitting in that fourth spot, and then Felix Ogier Aliasima as five. I'm going to ask you for your power rankings right now on the ATP Tour as we head towards Indian Wells at the end of this show, so keep that thought in mind, listeners. But to your point... I think it's been more incremental than you are. I think there has been a dramatic rise. Let me restate that. Uh, that over the past six months, certainly. But I think the incremental rise in his ranking is actually reflective of the incremental growth we've seen in Taylor Fritz. And look, I would go all the way back to 2014 when I believe he made a junior Wimbledon semifinal run out of nowhere. And at that point, he went by Taylor Harry Fritz. And obviously, he's dropped the Harry because it's cleaner that way uh, subsequently. But then you look at the 2015 junior season where Tommy Paul beats Taylor Fritz in the junior French Open final. And then Riley Opelka wins uh, the junior Wimbledon title. And then the best Kalamazoo I have ever seen Francis Tiafo beats Stefan Kozlov five sets in the final. It's You ask the historians. Colette Lewis says, in her opinion, that's the best match played in Kalamazoo history. You then have the 2015 U.S. Open junior title, where Taylor Fritz goes on to beat Tommy Paul in the final. He then wins back-to-back challengers that fall, that 2016 winter, you know, February, he makes that final in Memphis, and he's top 100 in the world. And you feel like all of these things are about to come his way. But if you actually watched Fritz during that course of time, I think you saw physically he just wasn't ready. Just yes, he was six foot four. Yes, he's always had a serve where that motion is so natural and he can hit the big kicker and he can hit the slice and he can go flat at you. The serve has never been the hard part. And that's why even at age 18, 19, he was able to win free points. And you look at the tennis abstract numbers, uh, you know, the average of a top 50 player, excuse me, to win. Uh, hold percentage-wise is about 83.6. If you look at the percentages for Taylor Fritz throughout his career, he's, for his career in ATP-level matches, 82.1. That's just outside the top 25. Of course, you look for him over the past few seasons when, oh, I don't know, he's 22, 23, 24 years old. He's, you know, 84.1% in the 2020 season. That's a top 25 number. He's 86.1% to start this season. You look for him here, you know, if you go specifically by 2022 results, I believe he ranks 11th right now in hold percentage. You look for him over the last 52 weeks. Taylor Fritz is, you know, still inside the top 25. He's 19th in hold percentage. And then you talk about the growth he's made as a returner. And I so, you know, again, given all of the jump in his, he's always been good at serving. He's now elite at serving. Top 15 over the past, you know, here this season, top 25 over the past 52 weeks. The big difference is in the return game. And I think that's for a couple of reasons. And this is why I think it's easy to confuse. And I apologize for going on this rant here. I'm going to give you the floor entirely after this. But I think when you look for Taylor Fritz, you know, he's always had the return skill set, right? Fundamentally, his forehand, he returns well on that side. He'll slice it and he can hit the block return. But also, if you leave a sitter, he's going to go after it. Even if you have moderate pace to that forehand wing, he can still swing through it comfortably because he can have a condensed backswing and he can take the ball early and on the rise despite having, you know, a Western-style grip. Obviously, everything has always been so smooth for Taylor Fritz on that backhand wing. I use this word a lot, probably too much, much like you use the word unique. Uh, he has an elite backhand. I think we would all agree. It's so fluid and just 
cross court angle down the line, you know, cross court with depth. There, uh, the slice isn't elite, but when he hits through that ball, he does it in an elite fashion. When you look at his break percentages, though, Gail, 2018 or 2017, excuse me, he was at 20.8%. That's not bad. You're going to be, you know, top 40 amongst top 50 players, but you're not in the bottom 10. 18.2 the subsequent season, 14.9 in 2019. 19.5 in 2020, 20.4 last season. Here's the big number. He's breaking 25.1% of the time this year. That ranks 17th in in 2022 amongst top 50 players. Why is that number so important? A, I think it's the most indicative stat, well, I guess this is the real argument, of the growth he's made physically. And he's just, he can track down your plus one forehand now. And he can extend a rally. And if he gets the rally to neutral, he can beat you now. And he's always had those skills to beat you when you're at a neutral place in the back uh, in on the baseline because he hits the ball so big. But he can now get those points back to neutral, and that's something that has taken him, you know, six years of pro tour action to get to. There's a lot there. I apologize. Yeah, yeah. So I, I agree that the physical, the physical improvements. It has been a long road, a windy path, and it's a big reason why we've seen him improve over the course of his career is that he's gotten stronger in the legs and faster. And that's totally been an emphasis for a very long time. I still think with the current state of Taylor Fritz's movement, he could easily be a player that would have never cracked the top 15. Had he not had coaches that pushed him and had he not accepted this new brand of tennis that is big man power tennis, especially on the forehand side where, you know, you mentioned the backhand, it's a beautiful weapon and it's always been there, but the forehand, it used to be much more tame. He would, you know, it was fine, but it wasn't great. And he didn't really jack up the speeds on that wing as comfortably as he's doing now. He wouldn't go after returns. And he just wasn't the hyper offensive player that I think his coaches have have looked at his abilities, his skill set. Such a talented ball striker and someone who serves great. Both wings can bring tremendous power. But the movement, we've talked about it a lot. It's never going to be the best in the world. You look at that package. How does this player need to play? Taylor, anytime the ball is short, you need to absolutely crush it. And it's a mindset. You cannot hold back. You must absolutely try to hit the cover off the ball whenever it is short. And to me, that's been the biggest, that's been the acceleration in his development since last fall at Indian Wells. Well, the numbers, again, reflective of that fact, and you look for Taylor Fritz since Indian Wells last season, he's in the top 25 club. He's in the top 20 club. Again, top 20 in both hold and break percentage, as I referenced, and you look for him during this stretch of time. Taylor Fritz, 26-8 and eight since the start of last year's Indian Wells. He's winning 76% of his matches. He's has an 85% hold percentage, a 26% break percentage. You look for him in terms of the breakdown by opponent against opponents ranked outside the top 50. He's 13 and 3. Outside the top 20, he's 16 and 5. You look for him against top 20 opponents, 10 and 3 during this stretch of time. That includes wins over Rublev twice, Zverev, Sinner, Berrettini, Nori a couple of times. Like Felix and Nadal, obviously, as well. 
He's beating the best of the best right now, and I do think this Indian Wells surface, that he has that extra split second, but that he also has the stability of gravel under him and not clay. Mm-hmm. It makes all the difference in the world for him. This surface is particularly well-suited for Taylor Fritz to have success because then he can also fire up the kick serve, right? And he just has yep. that much more time to do everything. He will never be the best volleyer. He will never be the most fleet of foot. But here, when everything is neutralized, he like the tennis is not the hard part for him. It's the physicality that's always come with it. You know, he's never been the most natural volleyer. I guess that might be the hard part as well. But what comes to mind to me is like, is it a slightly slower Delpo? Like, that's what I feel about this. Like, the way you talk about him needing to tee off on every opportunity, the way when Juan Martin Del Potro sees a forehand, it's go time. Is, is that what we saw shades of from Taylor Fritz this week? And am I being too hyperbolic? Like, what do we see the ceiling as now coming off of this performance? He's hitting the ball as well as anyone right now. Couldn't agree more. Both wings. Exactly. Uh, the backhand, the stats are absurd on the backhand in that final against Nadal. Uh, it was something like 14 finishes, so combining winners and forced errors, to four unforced errors. <laughs> That on a on a backhand that is so rare. Anyone who looks at those stats regularly knows, even at the highest level, even the best backhands in the world, you generally break even from like finishes to unforced errors. You're going to be basically 50-50 if your backhand is good. If your backhand is average to below average, you're going to be at a deficit on that wing. And then most of these guys make up the difference on their forehand. That is crazy. Uh, so I think the the makeup of Fritz is different than Del Potro in the sense that the forehand is not going to be as good. The backhand should be better. Um, The nerves are a big deal here because I really thought that has held him back. Um, And this was really the first tournament that I felt like he was going all the way in a big event against the best players. And that never became an issue for him. So that's another factor that should be kept in mind. Well, uh, to harp on that point, and, you know, in my roundier young days as a podcaster, I used to joke mm-hmm. about this with my co-host Max Rothman, and we did this next-gen series on all the Americans. And when we were talking about Fritz, it's like, look, there are times, for lack of a better term, where he's just big <laughs> Fritz, where it's just like, you know, if it's a big point, he's going to land a first serve. He's going to land a first forehand. He has had that ability since he was 18 years old. Since he was winning the Junior Slams, winning those young challengers where just somehow, again, you would watch these matches, you're like, how is he doing this? And it's like, because he finds first serves and he's just fighting off all of these break points. And you look for him again yesterday, fights off eight of 10 break points. And I know it was a hobbled Rafa and he got broken serving for the set and that was the crumble, but he had built himself uh, the first set, but he built himself a double break lead. And it's just, he has always had, I know you can't measure the clutch factor, But I think he's always been a guy who has the confidence in his ground strokes because you just see it so clearly. He's like, nah, like I'm gonna hit the ball bigger than you. That's not the issue. It's just can I physically out, you know, match you? Yeah, I just think that some of the performances, I mean, you had the round three block, some of the performances against elite players and especially at majors. I just don't think he's brought his best, Uh, especially, I mean, you think about, okay, you're playing Novak Djokovic in Melbourne and he's got no oblique. 
Okay, but and five what, sets still. Yeah, but and he I, didn't. It just yeah, wasn't but, a good. Oh, he should have won. The, yeah, but that he, was the physicality. Like I would agree with you. But I don't I'm think. Saying, I thought okay. he would. I thought he got passive though, and and that's okay. the that's the measuring stick, right? Because okay. like, and I'm consistent here. The way Corda lost to Nadal, that's the kind of choke I want to see. He stayed true to himself. He went after his shots. He did. He played how he needs to play. He just missed. What are you gonna do? But. Taylor, I've seen too often slow down the speed of his racket and not go after the shot. Like against Tsitsipas, in, in, that's another match. I, I thought he should have won. I really do. And he should take that. If you're a Fritz fan, you should take that as a compliment because we're talking about Stefano Tsitsipas. We're talking about Novak Djokovic. I think those are matches he could have won, just got tight and was not able to to play the way he was playing uh, in the beginning of sets at the end of the sets. My counterpoint would be, look at how we went down swinging today against Nadal with the hobbled ankle. And he was I think awesome. that's, that, no, that's but I I'm think saying. that's indicative of the growth. Like I, I okay, fair. I that's but I I'm also saying. would argue, how does he get to himself despite the clear physical deficit to five sets against Tsitsipas, five sets against, you know, Djokovic as well, and all these different opportunities. And to me, the answer to that question is because he has the skill set. He has the game. It's just clear. This was the first time. And, you know, again, seven, six in the third, back-to-back matches here. Kesmenovic and Davidovic Fokina, uh, not Davidovic Fokina, Munar, excuse me. And he wins them both. And he goes down swinging. And he had the bigger weapons in the end. Like, you're right. It's a recency bias. But I think here's why I go back to the previous examples. It's because physically, when he was at the top of the junior level, that's when you saw, you know, BDF emerge. That's when you saw Fritz be able to find the big serves in the big moments. Ditto at the top of the challenger level. I think he is now finally comfortable physically at the ATP level to where you see him now more comfortable going for those shots. It's about belief, and and we sure. might have been we might have been talking past each other a little bit because yeah. I'm talking about the past, not the future. Sure, in the okay. future, maybe maybe Fritz is gonna maybe Fritz is past that part of his of his career okay. for good, you know. And I think that's totally a possibility. He was amazing this week, but it, it's I guess about- I'm arguing for past Fritz. Yeah, that's what this you're comes ar- down okay. to. Okay, is uh, that I think you're I think case, you're a little not. I think you're selling him a little short. I, I think his head has gotten in the way. Okay. Um, in, in some of these big matches. I mean, you know, he he was 0-4 in his last four finals, lost to Dimonor in Atlanta, lost to Schwartzman in Cabos, lost to Nadal badly in Acapulco, lost to Chilich very tight in St. Petersburg. Uh, but but mainly it's the eye test. Mainly okay. it's watching some big matches in majors and some of these third-round matches where I just felt like we weren't seeing the best version of Taylor Fritz. But Again, how do you get past that? You believe in your training. You believe in yourself to to an extent where you're no longer getting too nervous to to go after the ball. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think he was absolutely at a point this week at his favorite event, having all the great results in the last five months, where there was just no doubt in Taylor's mind how he needed to play and that he was going to make the shots that he needed to make. Is this a Netflix conspiracy theory? <laughs> Is what? Just they're like, he has to win. Sorry, guys. Oh, we need oh. It for the story hey, line. I will say, you know what? Great for the program. Amazing for the program. <laughs> and I don't know, like, let's be honest here. And I don't want, look, I've been, 
very high on Fritz for a long time as a player. You know what? I won't even say as a long time. Since last fall, I've been extremely high on Taylor Fritz. Uh, and Since he started going 26 and 8. Look, no, no, not that I was ever a doubter or no, down I know, on him. I know. It's go just, on. Yeah. It, got to, it got to the next level in terms of me trying to, like, I think I've been trying to pump up how well he's been playing for the last five months. Sure. Um, despite that, I did question when I saw that Netflix was following him because he's the kind of player, he's not going to be a big deal or a big draw unless his results are great. Sure. Yeah. You agree? He's got the hair. Like, I would start right away. Great, great, great looking guy. Is that, <laughs> I, am I pumping him up too much? No, no. Is great that, looking guy. I agree great looking with guy. you. I <laughs> I'm team Tommy. Like, I'm just telling you, if Tommy Paul's the number one player in the world, tennis will be a thing. Because, like, he is just objectively attractive. Um, yeah, uh, anyways, sure. I'm not saying Fritz is unattractive. I'm just saying I see it more with Tommy. Um, I feel. Do you want to do, do this? Do you want to do screw the ATP no, let's top stop power it here. rankings? We'll let's stop no, it here. No, I mean, this is tennis Cut Twitter it speed. I think this might be our most this listened is. to show right here. <laughs> um, yeah, let's do 10 minutes on Veratini's legs. We did 20 on Fritz. Um, Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. No, I would agree with you. And you talk about confidence and belief. I think if you're an American men's tennis fan, first American to win Indian Wells since uh, Andre Agassi, but obviously, you know, of late, the sock Paris moment was so fleeting because of the descent that happened so rapidly afterwards in his game, and that was due to so many different reasons, injuries, etc. Isner is, you know, like putting your money, investing in gold, right? It's just going to sit there, and it's just like this commodity that you have, and it's just, it is what it is. You know exactly what you're getting in John Isner, and that might be a little bit too much there, but you get what I'm trying to say, is the stability of John Isner has been something American men's tennis fans can rely on. Yep. But there are now seven Americans right now in the ATP Top 40. It's the first time since 1997, a.k.a. the first time of the Gil Gross era. So first time of your lifetime that's happened. First time of my conscious tennis fandom lifetime that that's happened. Although I would love to see 1996 me being like, let's go Pete. Um, Because I feel like I could probably get that out at that (laughs) point. Um, That said, you know, again, I don't remember if this was with you or with a different guest we had. But if you look towards New York, there is a real chance that seven freaking Americans could be seated at the 2022 U.S. Open. Now, I think moving forward, we should have at least six because I think Fritz, Opelka, they're not going anywhere right now. Tiafo has stabilized himself inside the top 35. He's going to be right around there. But you feel like for sure one of Brooksby or Corda will be in that top 32 moving forward. Of course, you've also got Tommy Paul in the mix. You've got Brandon Nakashima still getting better in the mix as well. If you want a Mackie or Garone argument, I suppose you can have them. But if you focus more in general on the seven guys right now in the top 40, and that's Fritz, who's new career high today in the live rankings of number 12, Opelka's top 20, Isner right now top 30, you've got Tiafo, Korda, Paul, and Brooksby all inside the top 40 as well. We've asked this question a million times, but it does feel, I don't know, it just feels real. Like, Tommy Paul's won a title. 
Riley Opelka made a Masters final. He's also won a title. Fritz just won a Masters 1000 final, and they're all in the top 40. It's like American tennis, is it back? It's back in, in its own way. Like, I don't think, first of all, this Fritz title is going to help everyone. Yeah, there is a legitimate dynamic in tennis. There's a buzz. Undisputably. There's a buzz right now. There's a buzz, and and this this kind of thing where players come up together and they push each other is totally a real thing. It is not yeah. media manufactured or fan manufactured whatsoever. You you see this happen. We saw this happen with the Spanish players in the uh, early and more in the mid 2000s, I'd say, with all of them coming up and making each other better. Uh, we've seen it with the Russian players already on the men's side with that smaller group of players pushing each other to do better to the point where you have even a Karatsev and a Safulin being like, hey, I, I beat Rublev in the 14s, <laughs> yes. why not me? Medvedev, he sucked. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, and in, in Serbian tennis as well. And then on the women's, you the 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 Czech players have had a great thing going. Uh, How about as of the late. cross-gender Herkats Sviantek? Like, no doubt. Yeah. What about the sibling thing? Yeah. You you always see the the little sibling is... is... Fruvertovas? Are we going to do it? <laughs> Ten minutes? Yeah. Look, players make each other better. The yeah. big three. The big three. They all made each other better. <laughs> All right, we can keep going. So, so this Burdich, Ferrer, and Sanga, <laughs> no. the big three. Uh, I'll stop you there. Um, this is a, a real thing that's happening, yeah. where uh, these guys are being competitive with each other, and it's going to help everybody. I would switch Tiafo and Brooksby. I think Tiafo. Uh, I think Brooksby is the surefire seated player come US Open and Tiafo is into this into the the Top tier 40 stratosphere yeah, but yeah, maybe not seated. Yeah. yeah, there's the question. Yeah, sure. with like 36. There. It's like, "Oh, exactly. is Green playing or does he have a hamstring injury?" Like yeah, that stressor. Yeah. It's like if enough of those pull outs he plays. He's yeah. seated. Yeah, sure. Uh 20 2020 Jan Lennard Struff tier. Yeah. Go on, that's good. Look, sure. it becomes a it becomes a thing. It's about math. Yeah, and that's how I felt about that's how I felt about India Wells. And I when I tweeted, my gut and my brain is both telling me that an American man is going to make the final. Humble brag. It was not that I was sure about one player. It was that I thought that Isner could do it. I thought that Fritz could do it. I thought that Brooksby could do it. And then I thought to a lesser extent that Tommy Paul or Riley Opelka well, could do. Especially for Tommy, again, coming off of the Zverev win, you felt like anything was possible. And if you actually watch that match against Kasmenovic, if Tommy gets the break for 3-1 in the first set and Kasmenovic ended up holding, it's a different match. Like, Tommy just wasn't able to get the break point through, uh, you know, wasn't able to get over the hump. And I would agree with you. And by the way, bigger deal. Fritz winning a Masters 1000 title for American men's tennis or Kevin Magnuson finishing fifth for Haas. <laughs> like, that's freaking huge for us, Gil. We haven't celebrated it oh, yet. Oh, yes. What Cheers is a bigger deal? Like, what are you more excited about? Uh, Magnuson. 
It's I, yeah. If you're being honest, it's for sure, Magnuson. <laughs> um, I mean, he's like, we didn't suck. We came fist. The chance yeah. is so great. Like you know, they're gonna get that line in the first race. Ferrari looked good. You like the car? Good. good one what's one, it called? one year ago the today, chassis? we looked like like vonkers, and now we're here. <laughs> you know who's good looking? Uh, Charles Leclerc. Good looking guy. That's a yeah. that's a face for sure. So many of the F1 guys. Yeah, I don't know what joke. it is. It's like you have to be handsome to drive fast. You do. Because like, what, little... I feel like we're both seventy four in a seventy speed zone. Yeah, I agree. What was the question at the start of that? I wasn't absorbing. I guess over under five and a half seeds at the U.S. Open. Over. Yeah. But I didn't count. I mean, let's do it. Isner. Isner, Opelka, Fritz. Fritz. Locks, I would say, yeah. at this yep. point. I mean, Isner's going to win Atlanta, so you can just put those points on his <laughs> resume now, and like he'll be top 32. Um, yep. I mean, beyond that, it's like, I agree, one of Brooksby or Corda for sure. And I would probably go, I mean, Corda's got the Parma title, but he didn't, and fourth round at Wimbledon. I think Brooksby's the sure thing, because he did nothing during the clay court season last year, really, to defend. And so... I would probably go Brooks before. I agree. And he's got like look all at, the summer stuff. To you got to look at also with. just uh, the the yeah. win percentage. Yeah, it gives you an indication of how good he really is. Corda, okay. yes or no? Top thirty-two. I am going to. I'd say yes. That's so. That's really. I mean, yeah. do you remember how he destroyed Cam Norrie in the first round of Australia? Just destroyed him. Like that might have again in terms of impressive performances, shortlist dominance, it's up there on the season. There's a lot, you know, not enough people are talking about it, Gil. Yeah, I agree. I mean, Cam was a shell, but I I, I agree. <laughs> a shell. Uh, it's hilarious. We, he was a shell. He loses to Zverev, Felix, Korda, and Medvedev, and it's like, ah, he's a shell of himself. It's like, <laughs> no, he's not. Like, that's the most ridiculous. I I did a whole segment on. It. I think that was ridiculous. It's like that is a false narrative. Well, no, I, I think the false narrative is that if anyone wants to say he wasn't playing well in all those matches that you just mentioned, I agree. That's false. He was playing fine against Corda. For some reason, I think he was a shell, but that's just it's one yeah, match. It Korda happens. Blitz. Anyways. Yeah. So, he, he looked he looked a little lost in that. So match top to 32. Yay or nay? Uh, I'll say yay. Now he needs to stay healthy. I'm still I, I'm just concerned. There's two. Too many. He gets nicked up a lot, so okay. I uh, I want him to stay healthy. I'll say yay. Okay, Oliver Crawford, former Florida graduate, like currently three sixty in the rankings. He's a no. <laughs> He's a cross off. <laughs> um, Sam Riffis, no, just not going to play enough events. Um, no, Oswald. I would say yeah. Oh, I'm not crossing him off. Um, no, Corda, yes. So that's five. Tiafo, you seem like a no. I will say, yeah, I will say no. Tommy? Tommy, I think yes. Okay, so that's six, so that's the over. Yeah, I'm, right. I am I think Tommy has a real chance. I think he's going to start to be a little bit more consistent in his results. I think that's coming very you, soon. You know what we have to ask now, minute 51, do one of these seven win a slam? Ever? Ever. Singles. No cheating. Mm. Yeah, that uh, that question kind of hurts my brain a little bit. I know, bit. it's no fun because you start projecting out and you're like, 2025 Wimbledon feels like a prime Riley title. Like, just 
That's the one I will go into, and I'm picking him now. Lock it in. DraftKings, whatever the odds you'll give me, I'll take the ticket. Um, Look, I'm going to I'm gonna say yes because I think three, three to four crying. guys, I think three to four guys at some point in their career touch the top ten. Okay. And and that's a lot, you know? It's just a lot of possibility there. Corda twenty twenty seven New York. Circle it. I'm just like <laughs> that's that's the de- line of demarcation. Um no. Uh, more boldly, I mean again, seven in the top forty. All of them have titles, except for Brooksby, right? He's the one without the ATP title. That's no great, no, he won one? No, he or, didn't. Or he did lost he, in the he, he lost everywhere. in a lost Newport, in a bunch of he finals. lost in the final. Yeah, he's lost in all the finals. But we don't talk about that. But we did it to Felix. Um, it's just like <laughs> I don't get it. Like again, and no one has any questions about Brooksby. It's because he beat Djokovic in a set six one. If you do that, everyone's like, yeah, he's good. Um, I feel very good about the state of the American men's tennis. I think you do as well. That's probably long enough on those things. We have a couple more things to hit. I promise. But then I will let you go in a reasonable amount of time. I'm gonna say. A hard 15 more minutes here, but we're going to go quickly through these topics. Rafa, the hairline looked atrocious. And as a man (laughs) who is also balding, I just want to say I know for a fact that at some point Rafa was making the calculation in his head like, dude, if I keep playing in this wind, I'm going to lose so many hair follicles. And at this point, maybe it just makes more sense to save the hair, retire from the final, call it quits. Like, that's what I would have been thinking is like, I'm losing soldiers up top. This is not good for that performance. At the same time, the Alcaraz match, I haven't talked about it yet on a show. I can't believe it's taken this long to get there. I apologize. I don't care that the wind made it nasty. From it's just the sort of nastiness you want to see in a gateway sort of match, right? Rafa's at the, or Carlos is at the door knocking, saying, "Let me in," and Rafa's like, "No, not not quite yet." Here's this on the run backhand cross court volley for a winner. Sorry, Carlos. Amazing, amazing match. I don't want to hear about the quality. It's an amazing <laughs> match. Uh, Nadal, that was one of the great volley performances of his career because. Uh, Rafa Not enough people talk about him as a volleyer, Gil. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But in in all seriousness, the way he's always volleyed and, you know, people have been like, oh, what an underrated volley. The way he's volleyed is he's set himself up with easy volleys. That's been his decision-making process. In this match, he was like, basically, oh, I need to force my way up Mm -hmm. because my, his forehand, I don't think it felt good all week long. Mm -hmm. Alcaraz so fast that was his way to finish points. So he wasn't just going to net to finish easy volleys. He was going to net and accepting difficult volleys and making them at an incredibly high rate. And I've never seen a match with so many amazing reflex volleys. And by the way, Carlos had some too. Mm -hmm. No, I mean, first of all, uh, there was a lot of talk on Nadal, his footwork in the wind, all of it validated. This man is the most efficient man I think tennis has ever seen. And you talk about, I'm really glad how you framed it, his ability to set up easy volleys for himself. He's going to attack you cross-court. You know, his ability to go cross-court forehand with the wind behind that ball, the heaviness of it, and just saying, hey, this ball that you're going to hit back to me is landing inside the service line. So I'm going to sneak forward. I'm going to hit a volley. I'm going to knock it off. I'm going to take time away from you. That's going to work even in the wind. That was immensely impressive from him. The way he just massaged his forehand going both with the wind and when he was against the wind particularly as well, you're just like, this man is so continually impressive. At the same time, 
and my buddy Max Rothman, former co-creator of this show, and not former, always co-creator of the show, but former co-host, he was at this match. And he said, Alex, of all the players I've ever seen physically, I have never seen something like Carlos. He's just like, what this guy can do and his ability on the break point, and I know it was the one that went around, but to hit that measured of a backhand lob over Nadal's head, and you saw after the ball landed how the wind had it take off and go even faster, and Rafa, who tried to sprint quicker to it to track it down, was like, nope, it's just not going to happen. This ball got faster on me. To see him do that was out of this world, Gil. Like, it, it really was, and again, he broke Rafa. Like, he did, and you have to... 92% no 85% of the title goes to Taylor Fritz 15% goes to Alcaraz who <laughs> really t- you know pushed Rafa to the brink and the passing shot he hit to break at the start of the match cross court into the win with that backhand the incorporation of the drop shot to make Rafa just think that much more he had a bunch of breakpoint opportunities you know I thought he did a really good job absorbing the Rafa forehand and using that top spin to drive through his backhand I have no qualms with Alcaraz's performance. Like, to me, he actually did, even in a loss, you talked about a good loss for Korda against Nadal. I thought it was a good loss for Alcaraz as well. Yeah, I mean, he should he should get a trophy for winning the second set as far as yeah. I'm concerned. Do you think if there was, like, a third-place trophy, they'd be like, sorry, Andre, we're going to give it to Carlos? <laughs> yeah, I do. <laughs> it would have just been like, would have been like, look, like, Carlos beat Nadal in my opinion, the best wind player ever. Yeah. In a in a in a tornado. Yeah. That that is going to be the that deserves a trophy in itself. And and he showed his adapt adaptability because we know how aggressive he likes to play. Quite frankly, he sprayed way too many errors in the first set with that highly aggressive brand of tennis. He totally was able to rein it back in the wind. He accepted the conditions. He completely adjusted. That's awesome stuff for a teenager to be able to do. And the physical tools, I think everybody's kind of getting around to it. It's just completely abnormal what he's been given by the man upstairs. No, it's a fair. I mean, again, or if, woman. You're, go- if you're going to be sleeveless, look like he does would always be my advice um you know i've done this shtick with a couple of other people now i asked david about this as well and we talked about it on the women's side but you know the framing i have and this isn't to put an inordinate amount of pressure on him and by the way for astute nadal analysis i well, just to put the finishing bow on that and i really you know i don't like to plug other things i'm very competitive here at cracked rackets i have said this before whenever you're on the show i say it all the time i don't care if I steal takes from you therefore because I like your takes um and so I listen to three a tennis show I listen to Monday match analysis I think all of you should as well for in-depth analysis on all things Rafa uh so we'll save that piece for your show so people should go listen to it I do want to ask moving forward how concerned are you from a health perspective I'm not that concerned especially because it didn't seem it's it seemed like the foot thing this week was just a blip and it went away. It's interesting to hear uh, Jim Courier's insights on Tennis Channel that the foot thing is oftentimes something that he feels the day after a match and then it goes away. Um, that's it good was for noticeable in the final. I mean, he was slow. Like, except yes, for those last yes, 30 he minutes, he could not slide out of corners. He was not comfortable changing direction. I, I know, but I'm not 
I don't know if that and when I was first watching, I agree with you. I was like, oh, that's not the pectoral. Okay. The pectoral <laughs> does not make you move worse. Okay. But then I I listened to Rafa describe the injury and he was like, well, there's something wrong with my ribs and it it hurt to to even breathe. Yeah. And then I'm like, maybe it was all the oh, what was going shit. on in the upper body, and maybe that was everything. So I agree with you. When I was first watching, I thought, okay, it's there, we're having some foot issues again, huh? Uh, but then now I'm not so sure. So, you know, ultimately my concern level, especially with how far down the road Roland Garros is, I'm not that concerned. Uh, that's what this becomes about. It's about timing. Uh, I just, I do want to address though, the idea that the idea that either Nadal or the media manufactures Nadal injuries to excuse his losses is such a pathetically wrong thing to think. And it's totally not true. The way it should be looked at is Nadal does have a durability issue. So are a lot of his losses going to be chalked up to the fact that his body fails on him? Yeah. Hello. This is what it is. This is not some sort of bad luck. Nobody's calling Nadal unlucky. This is what he is. Nobody's taking credit away from his opponents. Guess what? Staying healthy is part of tennis. Nadal isn't great at it. He's much better at basically everything else. And that's how it is. I'm so excited you went on this rant because now I get to do my favorite thing. Who's saying that? Like, the only read, people, Wait the a only, second. Read. Okay, go do ahead. Do you want to go through my... First of all, my YouTube comments and my Twitter mentions are saying that. Okay, so this is what I'm saying. Is any credible person, though, saying this? Like, who? where is this vibe coming from? If this is from no. the subsect of the big three fandom and argument that is always grotesque and shouldn't be taken seriously, I agree with you. I guess my argument to that would be no serious person says that. Point taken. Point taken. Because ten, I, I agree. I'm not seeing... Media it's a members, fan, for it's example, a fan basing. no, because I it do is, agree. It Somehow fans. that narrative has emerged, and I like. Eh. All right, I'll say it. I think it was Owen who tweeted something similar. I saw something along those lines this morning. To which my answer was, "Why are you validating those people?" Right? Like, I appreciate you dispelling that because it is ridiculous. Yeah. But I don't. My counterpoint, and it also dispels it, is like there is no serious person saying that. True, but I also get it. I get where it comes from, which is an eye roll of, oh, when he lost to Lloyd Harris, it was an injury. Now he yeah. loses to Taylor Fritz, it was an injury. Sure. And it's like- Well, he was but out. Then, yeah. But then it's like, yes, yes, yeah. it is an injury. Exactly. Correct. Oh, 100%. I, it's like, I was at the Lloyd Harris match. I was like, first of all, it's not that Lloyd Harris, it's not that he was injured against Lloyd Harris, it's that Jack Sock broke him the night before. And man, was that tennis fantastic. And Sock played. I mean, it's funny because Sock played that well against Tsitsipas, too. Sock has played two outstanding, <laughs> some outstanding tennis yeah. in the past few munches, uh, matches, months, excuse me, and wins the doubles title here, obviously, as well. But, all right, I agree. If you want to hear more on Rafa, three a tennis show, the place for you to go. <laughs> hey, great shot there. A couple of other things quickly, and then I promise I'm going to let you go. Greatest of all time conversation, something you guys talk about on three a tennis show. I've done this a couple of times here on this show. Obviously, Novak Djokovic, Rafael Nadal, Roger Federer, all very much a part of the discussion right now on the men's side. My argument of late is that 99.8% of players, top 100 or otherwise, 
are eliminated by the time they're 20 years old. And all I'm saying is that Carlos Alcaraz, through this point of his career, has not been eliminated from the greatest of all time discussion. I'm not saying he's the greatest of all time. I'm just saying yeah. he hasn't been eliminated. Now, I did a full version of this with Damian Coos. The conclusions we came to, and we spent too long on it, were that was that Felix needs to win a slam by the end of this year if he would like to not be crossed off. He can still be a Hall of Famer. He can still be exceptional, win 10 grand slams, but he's not going to be the greatest of all time. Sinner's got till he's 21 years old. It's really 21 years old. You got to win a slam by then because then you're at least on the Federer track, right? So Sinner's not quite eliminated yet, but there's maybe like one line through his name. Ditto with Felix. Alcaraz is just on the list, in my opinion. And like, I would throw Jerry Shang on there too, who's just been (laughs) killing it on the ITF circuit. But I understand if you don't want to put him there yet. Am I ridiculous? No, it's a good take. It, <laughs> Thank you. It's a good take because it it demonstrates that like the the goat argument may never catch up yeah. to to a point where everybody can settle down in their chairs and be like, well, here we have a still picture of yeah, exactly. all of the players. And we can Roger first, Rafa second, and Novak in third. <laughs> it's like that's not yeah, how it's ever going to be. Never really going to happen. Yeah. Uh, but in terms of I actually would be a little bit harsher on some of the other players who are maybe not crossed off the list yet because I almost think we can kind of trust ourselves and and what we know about tennis. I mean, the thing about Nadal, Djokovic, and Federer is, yes, they they all have parts of their games that are just absolutely exceptional and uh, elite to the nth degree. But also, it's like, whoa, what are you bad at? Where where are you vulnerable? And there's almost like I can't find it. Uh, Novak overheads. Uh, should we just feed him overheads? No, we're gonna lose that way. Like it's a there's that kind of conundrum. Elite athlete, amazing defense, amazing offense. Where are we going? Carlos is the only guy who has that. Yeah. And I feel like with Sinner and Felix, it's ninety percent complete games but there's still kind of holes to pick and critiques to go where are we critiquing Carlos Alcaraz right now he doesn't hit his spots on his first serve really I mean we yeah. know that's gonna sort I mean, itself out can I ask you what's your critique of Sinner because the Felix critique I think we know but what's the critique of Sinner he's one speed Yeah, no he's not sure variety potentially I actually think that that's something that by the end of his career, he will have. Yeah. Uh, but it's it's that mostly be- the raw raw athleticism, raw okay. speed. Interesting. Because he's a he's a good mover, but he's not the he, elite athlete that Alcaraz is. Yeah, or Federer, or Nadal, or Djokovic, dare or, or you Murray. say, dare one say, Carlos Alcaraz, he's a rare athlete. I don't know if he's unique, but he is a rare breed <laughs> of he's athlete a rare breed. here. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. Obviously, you have no take on Jerry Shang. That's fine. Um. Carlos Al, no, I. Fair, I, I, I have nothing. It's I, just look, like the I, way I you watch, can say Medvedev, Zverev, Tsitsipas, Krasimov. Like they're just not. They have issues, they, right? And, they can all be Hall of Famers. They can maybe even win eight to ten Grand Slams. I don't think they're going to, but they maybe could. They're not going to be the greatest of all time. Here's the the reference point I'd have: at the 2030 Indian Wells, Carlos Alcaraz will be 26. Like, <laughs> come on now. Uh, look, we'll see what what will the landscape look like. I mean, 
the the weird theory about the big three i always maintain i don't subscribe to the theory like imagine if <laughs> if federer and djokovic didn't exist nadal yeah. would have 40 except slams. for you liked uh who did it bastion who did the yeah. here's if none of them existed that here's i a love simulation. that, yeah, I, that love. I agree i agree with you there's a difference is what i'm trying to point out yeah, so I, you know, again, I think the big three made each other better. I don't agree with, like, if you add together all the slams, Rafa would have had 60. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but in this scenario, Gonzo probably has, like, two. And so I think we're all better for that. Yeah, exactly. Roddick probably uh, has a Wimbledon. Right. So that to say, I don't know that I don't look at Carlos Alcaraz's potential career as well, what if we get a Federer Nadal Djokovic level player without the other two? Is that going to mean he's going to win 35 slams? I don't think that's what that means. I don't think it works like that. I legitimately think without each other, the big three would have looked a lot more like Pete Sampras. Okay. I, you know, I hope the Agassi fans come after you the same way these people saying Nadal's <laughs> man, you know, he's manufacturing Agassi stuff here, guys. Get him. Um, yeah, that's fair. I agree. I think you needed all of them for the era to be what it is. Certainly for Roger Federer, what's the point in the longevity? Why play until your 30s if people aren't coming to your for your crown? Like, I think you can point he's in there. Yeah. Well, invariably to the fact 2017 exists because 2015 existed for Novak. And it's mm -hmm. like, yep, I got to keep going because this guy's coming after me and I need to pad my stats. And that's the motivation right there. Couldn't agree with you more. With that said, here we go. Final topics. I mentioned a hard 15 here down the end. I've got like 10 minutes or like eight minutes left uh, with you here. ATP power rankings heading into Miami. And I want to use the uh, frame of reference of the latest tennis abstract ELO ratings, which again, I think right now do about as well of capturing a framework of where things are at as any system you're going to turn to, particularly with, didn't Roger Federer move up after this Indian Wells? I think I remember yeah. reading a tweet yeah, like did. that. Like, come on. Like, again, what are we really doing here? He had a good week. Yeah, he good week for him. Indeed, he, he hit against the wall. He didn't lose. Um, so <laughs> rankings reward that. You look right now at the ELO ratings. Right now, let's start with the yearly ELO ratings. So I think that's what I want to talk about. Power, rank, power rankings right now heading into Miami. Nadal's number one, 20 and one in the world. Uh, 20 and one overall. Rublev two, 18 and three. Sometimes these records are a little funky. Fritz mm. three, 14 and four. Alcaraz four. Felix five. Let's just start with that top 10. I don't see a lot wrong with it. Like I know Felix lost first round at Indian Wells. That's never going to be the best surface for him. Fritz feels a little high. Even after this result, like number three feels like a little bit much, yep. but directionally, I mean, Nori six, Medvedev seven. I don't think you can definitively put Med. I mean, Huh. Fritz over Medvedev right now seems a little laughable, particularly as we go from Indian Wells to Miami. I guess Medvedev's the outlier. He's the one you'd clearly move up, and the past performance, he deserves it. But, like, have Zverev or Tsitsipas been demonstrably, demonstrably better than the rest of the field that they should also be in that range as well? Like, I would say no. I would say you probably, you know, again, Nadal won, and then it's just a bunch of, like, eh, yeah, uh, he's looked off. I, well, I shouldn't say he. Tsitsipas and Zverev, yeah. two people. They've looked off. Uh, there's no doubt about it. Medvedev, I just, at the end of the day, I don't I care like where this is going. about. 
I just after between the if you're number two or one in the world, if you're a top three player, or whatever, I'm not too interested in what happens between the Australian Open and Indian Wells. I, I just Preach. don't. Yeah. yeah. So it doesn't matter. And again, Medvedev. He lost to Nadal in Acapulco. It's like, first of all, that's not a bad loss. No. And look, he he did look like he wasn't. He looked like he was lacking a little bit of. Looked a little Quit resigned spot. in that match. Yeah. It just looked like he didn't. He, he wasn't fighting for his life in that okay, match. Sure. That, that's all I'll say. Um, but you get it. Like it's been a horrific matchup. He's, I think, tired. Nadal was ridiculously good, and it's just not the most important tournament in his calendar. So you get it. Uh, I think Medvedev could rebound in Miami very easily. I do think Rublev's too high being at number two. Um, I wouldn't have him that high. I, I love how well he's played, but you know, I number two just feels too high. Felix, I am super high on, and he's the player who I'm most interested to see how he looks in Miami because he's been at a top five level. And he's well rested. On the yeah, on the eye test, well rested, trains in Florida. Mm-hmm. Mm. That that makes a big difference. I've noticed players who train in Florida just do really well in Miami. Uh, the humidity is forced to be reckoned with. The wind is often a factor as well, although I think less so in Hard Rock than it was in in Key Biscayne. I don't think. Mm-hmm. Right, it's not too windy over well, there. Well, so think. true story. We played. You talk about the humidity. I lost eight pounds in three days, uh, and I don't have that many pounds to lose, I'll be honest. Like, eight pounds in three days playing in Miami. We, like, would get the dinners and the lunch, and you're eating so much because we played, like, four hours a day, and I was broken afterwards. God, was it fun. Yeah. Um, but, like, you are going to sweat. And, yeah, these guys are the pros. I agree with you. That's why, like, you know, Opelka's eighth via ELO rating, I don't think that's a bad place to have him heading into nope. Miami, given his familiarities with the conditions. Tommy Paul, 25th. Is that low? Like, it might be a little low for him heading into Miami, given his recent form. I think there are a lot of good names in the lit, uh, in the mix. And so, with that said, let's just go through the list quickly. I don't know if we've got an official confirmation. We can assume Rafa will not be playing Miami, correct? Uh, no, it is official. He is not playing. Correct. Okay, so he is out. Let's make our quick top ten heading into it. I would agree with you. Despite the loss, I still think Medvedev has to be one, right? Especially with no Djokovic, no Nadal in the field. I think Medvedev's your number one pick, power rankings-wise, heading into this. Right. We're back on a normal, somewhat normal speed hardcourt, and that's how it goes. And he's had a week off. I agree with you. Yeah. Who's two? Alcaraz? That you're pausing is a ridiculous. Again, this kid's 18 years old. I, and I yeah, agree with you. Yeah, it's, it's not it's an crazy. unreasonable thing to say. No, well, my number two is Felix. I like that pick. I would go. Huh. I mean, it's got to turn around for Zero at some point, right? Like, he's got to be. It, can he be in the top five of this conversation or has he fallen out of it? No, I mean, I, I don't think it does. He's shown that sometimes he can go into a for, dark place for two months two months i mean has it yeah i mean i i yes you're right generally the 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 ups and downs the downs don't last too long it's usually a Zverev. week it's like a bad week and then he goes and plays two 250s and wins them <laughs> are they both cologne yeah <laughs> 
exactly. Yeah. Uh, look, I yeah, you're right. You're right. Like Zverev should not be written off here at all. Yeah, and so I think he belongs in the conversation. Felix certainly. I think there's a new physicality to Rublev. I think he's willing to be more patient going backhand to backhand. He doesn't force himself to find the inside-out forehand as early in rallies. Now, I think sometimes he gets a little too passive almost at times now, but I think there is just a new element of physicality. I think he's got to be in that conversation. I think Nori's got to be in there. I'm really hoping Sinner's healthy because if he's not, it's just a lot of points to lose. Yeah, what's the is what's the concern with Sinner's uh, health? He had, was there? I, it wasn't COVID, but he had COVID before, and he just wasn't feeling well, right? It was unclear. That was my thing. Is it was unclear what exactly his issue was pre curious Oh yes, yes, yes. See, I was at the match. I should have been more <laughs> on top of that. Uh, yeah, he he looked fine though by the end, uh, okay. but it was like a dizziness thing. Yeah, I think it was a freak. I think it was a freak okay. little thing. Uh, well, you never want to be dizzy covered. the week before you head to the humidity of Miami. So, again, that's something. What about Hubie? Are we writing off Hubie? He lost to Rublev like four and six in this event. He was broken yeah. once or six and four. He was broken in the last game of the match. Yeah, I'm just like I'm generally worried about Hubie a little bit because I don't think that it's not like I think he's fine. It's just I don't I, I didn't see much of a jump. So far in 2022 from last year, I see a very similar player. And what we got last year was some great runs and a lot of losses that I think were disappointing for him. So now he comes into a week where he's defending championship points. And it's I I think it's a vulnerable spot. We joke about it all the time. The people don't talk enough about superstars. Who is the player people are actually not talking about enough heading into Miami? Give me one name. Is it Jack Draper, the lefty who's been killing it on the <laughs> Challenger circuit? Going to get that IMG wild card? Yeah, I'm I'm into that storyline. Kokonakis? I think that's an interesting one. I could see him round of 16 quarterfinals. People are not talking about... What about Hatchnov? I know I texted you about this, but is 2018 just an aberration? Like, what, what do we do about him? Because, again, yeah, surface it, it... level, all the signs are there. Yeah, I, I just think I think he got blown up a little bit too much. Um, I think he is a really good player, but there's there's systematic stuff like with how well he can move, with how he hits his forehand, honestly with how big he serves at six foot six. He does not have the best first serve out there, and you know you'd think that he might or he could. So he's just a very very much a top 20 player but he's just also very much not a top 10 player yeah i, I don't think that's unfair to say with that in mind you want to give me a prediction or are you yeah but let me yet? let me let me give you uh a name that okay. i oh yeah you did, that's, i apologize yeah we didn't even get a name there um yeah Casper so Shap- Rude? yes so Ooh. i have two names i'm interested in chapo okay uh, another guy trains in florida former miami mm-hmm. semifinalist, and I think that him and Jamie Delgado, he looks really engaged again in himself and getting better and tinkering in his game and figuring things out. It's going to happen. Uh, he just he's not going to continue to lose okay. uh, as as early as he has been. There's not going to happen. And Casparud, 
who I think is ready to make that next step. And the question is, is it going to happen in Miami or are we going to have to wait until clay where everyone is going to kind of put an asterisk over kind of the great results that he is inevitably going to have because he still will have not shown it on hard courts with the exception of San Diego last year. Yeah, I, all these things are fair. I am fascinated. I, one other name I would throw in, and I know he's got Adrian Manorino round one. That feels very winnable. Which Kyrgios do we see show up this week in Miami? I know it's an easy storyline, obviously, to talk about, but he looked excellent in Indian Wells. Like, we can agree, right? And I know people are going to talk about the harassment of the official, and of course that's unacceptable, and... You know, I feel bad to say it was excellent television. My point was I love that Tennis <laughs> Channel Plus allows the chair, uh, the changeovers to go unfiltered so that as a fan you can get a glimpse of a moment like that. At the same time, David Kane fired this takeoff at the end of part one, and I thought it was a very good take. Like the racket destruction, that was a fluke bounce from the racket. It didn't look like it was going particularly fast. Like, I again— it's unacceptable, I get it, and there's a broader conversation I suppose to be had about, you know, just the acceptability of that action. That said, from a tennis perspective, you look at Kyrgios, I thought he played really good ball, and you look for him in the draw, and I'm still searching for him, I apologize. I think, yeah, he's got Manorino first, then he'd have to face Rublev in that second match. He gets him early. And if he can get him early, then things start to open up. You've got a Fonini in that section. I think eventually it would be a round of uh, 16 match against a Yannick Sinner, so we, perhaps we'd actually get to see it. I like. I thought he played really well. That was like again, he was just locked in from the start. Yeah, you know the crazy thing is I, I, I haven't looked at the draw yet. What version of Kyrgios? will we see he just seems like he's in a good place off the court right mm -hmm. and i picked him to be a dark horse going into the tournament just being like i needs rankings points he's desperate he looked good in australia he seems really happy i just think we're gonna get focused nick Kyrgios, or determined and what was there from start to finish is effort and intensity mm -hmm. was he composed no did he control his temper no was he always focused? No, but he tried really, really hard. Yes. That's the key. And I think we'll see that again. Um, I think that is the most important thing mentally. Uh, people can point to him jabbing at umpires, but at the end of the day, it's about moving your feet fast. It's about being willing to run. <laughs> it's about uh, not hitting stupid shots. Those are the things that he did in Indian Wells. I think we'll see him do it again. And the question is, is this off-court happiness that he's found, how long does that last? Is that sustainable? What is the root cause of that? I think publicly he said, oh, it's my girlfriend. Is that really what it is? Is, is he just flirting? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but... It's it's nice to see. Yeah, I completely agree with you. Last note would be that you look at the numbers right now via Tennis Abstract. Singles forecast, Medvedev the favorite, 27.3%. Zverev, second favorite, 164 Can you guess who's third? Mm, I think it would be Rublev. 
Carlos Alcaraz, 8.4%. Then Rublev, 6.6%. Sinner, 6% square. It's going to be a fun week of action or two weeks, whatever we want to call it, 10 days. And, of course, I am sure, although no three. So if there's no big three members, does that mean no three tennis show heading into Miami? What can we expect from you for the next 10 days? We haven't talked it over. I don't know what we're doing. Okay. Do you you have any ideas? Guest spot. This is the week. Andy Murray, pivot. Big three, parenthesis, plus one. And then not only do you do the plus one episode about Andy Murray, but you bring in a fourth guest to symbolize the equation. And I know the perfect guest for you. He's funny, charming, handsome. And if he says no, I can fill in. (laughs) (laughs) Do do you like it? Have you seen me? uh, I've been in the trenches for uh, Andy recently. Well, look, you just want that Murray Musing invite. Um... So you can hit the, the no, really cycle. though. I've been defending because people think like big four is a curse word. So let me ask you right now. You get and I know I obsess about this. Again, I make fun of the things I'm actually most self conscious about. You get one hairline. Murray's or Rafa's? Who do you take? <laughs> uh, Andy's. And Murray's got better hair than Rafa. Now, but it was reversed because Murray never had great hair. Hey, true. Right. Oh, I never don't know great. the orange fro. If, if tennis Twitter was a thing in the early days, and I oh, know that, that photo still goes around, but like he already is a fan favorite, that much yeah. more so. Right. So, of course, the, the contrast. Andy was never great. Rafa used to just have a, a gorgeous, flowing mane. Yeah. Um, so I'd say Andy has been uh, has aged better, but Nadal, peak Nadal is much better. Do you think Nadal misses the Capris? No. I feel like for his they final looked, match, they looked bring- really bad. Always, I'm sorry. <laughs> like they would, literally. I was. That was maybe one of my first ever tennis takes. It's just that you can't have capris and then also do the. Dah! It was just like a horrible combination. It's like, dude, this is tennis. So who would play? Who would, who would be a perfect player to wear capris? I have people in mind. Oh wow! But I'll let you go. This is a great place to end today's show. Whose ankle do I just want to lock in on? <laughs> I mean, Yuri Vesely screams Capri's. Like, just first, right off the bat, that was the one that jumped into my head. Like, that is a man who belongs in a Capri pant. Um, Fabio Fognini, at this point, like, a, a casual a casual yeah, Capri, like, for the first set. And then if it's close, he'll take him off. I mean, not Alcaraz, not Sinner, no one who's intense. It's got to be lackadaisical. Like, you got to be to rock the Capri nowadays because you probably then go in low socks as well, right? Because you got to show some skin. Yeah, you got to go low socks. Who's going to do that? I mean, Riley would do it simply because he bought the wrong, like, pair, and he's like, these were yeah. supposed to be pants. Yeah, um, and they, 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 they would fine him also. And yeah. Then that would <laughs> Oh, $15,000 for having something circular around your ankle. Because he'll do, my dad, what does he always call them? I'm not going to say it publicly because I'm not sure if it's a pro. I don't remember what he calls them. But you know how sweatpants now have like how they band tightly around your ankles? Yeah, they're uh, called, you know, like, I don't know. Sweatpants? Yeah, sure. Joggers. There it is. He like, he's like, he's like, 
why would you want that? He's like, why would you want your ankle to be suffocated like that? And I was like, what are you talking about? I was like, you mean a comfortable fit? Like, why would I want something to fit comfortably? And he's like, no, you're just you're wrong. Um, whatever. I was like, because I don't got those meaty thighs that you do. I was like, I'm fine. Um, anyways, yeah, who's your list? Felix? So, Felix? No, Ooh. no. To me... Like all the French players should just band <laughs> together and it should just be a thing. Like I Gasquet, Simone would have been amazing. Do you think I mean, if Simone Hugo Abair wore Capri's, his break percentage would exceed ten? Yes. Like <laughs> I think Umbert would be amazing. Yeah. But Gasquet, I think, could really lead the The thing the is, charge. you can't hit the forehand the way Ugo does and wear Capri's. Again, it would be two disqualifying traits. I don't know, like it's Sunwoo Kwan would rock Capri's. I'm <laughs> so certain about that. Um oh end the show here. Sasha Bublik. Yeah. That's a man who I don't know if he's ever changed like he's could maybe not do laundry during a freaking tournament and it wouldn't shock me. We gotta get Capri's on that guy, you're right. Yeah, how do we not have a Capri sponsor? What are we doing here? Um Player most likely to wear leggings during a match? Um, Madison Brengel. No. <laughs> I, I meant men's player. I would say Sock. I would say Jack Sock eventually is going to switch to an all leggings. <laughs> like maybe some shorts over them sort of look. Like it's just coming. Give it two more years. Um, yeah. All right. Or Brooksby because Brooksby, speaking of box, 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 Brooksby looks the most like a race car. Like his shirt is impressive. His shirt? Like, he's got the Samsung or the Motorola. Like, he's yeah. got the logos everywhere. He's got the, the side one on the hat, the MasterCard. That's when you know you've made it. Layla Fernandez is winning, though. Oh, that's... I mean, With no. The, Did you see Porsche today? Raducanu's winning. Well, yeah, but I'm to, on the kit, like, to wear Lululemon, and then what? It says J.P. Morgan. Do you think Emma Raducanu was like, well, you know, I, I really liked how Carlos and... Leclerc performed in the first race and so I was gonna sign with Mercedes Williams caught my eye as well I was really impressed by Alfa Romero but Porsche was the winners in the end yeah I mean Emma that's what she's about yeah like just F1 stand last one best F1 driver currently on tour who would be the best not Bublik too reckless Bublik yeah. would be who was the guy who just kept freaking crashing last season or like uh, the 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 Haas rookie? Yeah, you know the one who was just they were just like it's over. Yeah, the, You're done. yeah the the Russian Haas rookie. Yeah, they were just like no more. Like yeah. that is Bublik. If he Nikita, was, Nikita. Yeah, yeah, Marsipan or Marsipan or whatever. Yeah, 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 him. So that's that's the good comp. Who would be the best? Who's the step? Rude. Duh. Duh. Dumb question. Uh, it's Casper Rude, it. right? Yeah, Rude would kill it. Brooksby would be Verstappen. <laughs> In terms of just like he gives, he gives just zero. The thing is, people like Rublev too much for him to be Verstappen, Verstappen. But he's got some Verstappen in him. Um, he does. Yeah. I mean, yeah. That, you know what? Hercotch. Ricardo is Hercotch. No. No. Lando not Norris might be Hercotts. Where it's just like, no, who's like the most aloof? Where no, Carlos Sainz is Hercotts for okay. sure. We're just like kind of out. You're just like doing your own thing, but it's so compelling. That's Hercotts. Yes. I don't mind it. 
Fritz, I like it. Fritz wants to be Ricardo. He's in, not even no yeah, no no he, he wants doesn't to be, have the but he's in reality Pierre Gasly. Yeah. Yeah yeah he doesn't uh, Fritz doesn't command a room really. Yeah exactly man Medvedev's got some Ricardo in him from a tennis perspective like it's a tennis Ricardo he does kind of I mean it's interesting. Yeah, I'm now. I'm just going through who's like the <laughs> who's the Lance Stroll. I'm like who's the pure nepotism pick here? Um, yeah, and I just like don't have it on. Maybe it's Fritz. I mean, uh, you know, not enough is made about his tennis back. No, it's uh, Leo Borg. Yeah, <laughs> Petros Tsitsipas. Um, yeah, yeah, that's probably the best one. All right, we're over an hour and a half. That's far longer than I promised I would keep you here. Plugs, anything we should expect? Monday match analysis. At Gil underscore gross on Twitter, three, a tennis show, and that be all. Did you Pleasure get, as always. Did you get yourself sushi to celebrate over 5K? Uh, no. Good no idea, ce- though. No celebration? You got a no. Butterfingers? <laughs> so much. So many Butterfingers. <laughs> yeah. You got all it. All right. As always, Gil Gross, Monday Match Analysis, 3A Tennis Show. You can find all of our content, CrackedRackets.com. I'm at A.L. Gruskin, at Cracked Rackets. Shout out, as always, to the super producer, Daniel Westoff, for the of an editing job he does day in, day out. God, he's going to be like, you gave me three and a half hours of podcasting between Gil and David. What are you expecting today? That's half the fun, folks, as we try. I think we have Indian <laughs> Wells covered. And now we can turn the page towards all things Miami, of course. With all that said, for the fantastic Gil Gross, super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point, from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. Gil, what do we tell our listeners? There's the break. And we will see you all tomorrow. Thank you as always, my friend. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.